Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Yossi Alfer. Yossi Alfer has written the new book, Death Tango, Ariel Sharon, Yasser Arafat, and Three Fateful Days in March, published in New York by Roman and Littlefield, 2022. Yossi is a former Israeli intelligence and security researcher. He is now retired and writing books. Yossi, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. Happy to be here. Thank you. Kindly, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study in university? What inspired you to become a writer specializing in strategy and intelligence? I grew up, uh, my childhood was in the United States, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Studied at Columbia University in New York. Uh, Studied, or what what they called at the time, Oriental Studies, which uh, covers everything between Beirut and Tokyo, actually. Uh, So I got a taste of the Middle East there, Um, but in the meantime, became interested in Israel, became a Zionist, and uh, immediately after finishing my studies, made Aliyah, uh, and uh, had always had an interest uh, growing up in Washington, particularly an interest in uh, international affairs and politics, um, which uh, apparently caused me to gravitate toward uh, intelligence in the Israel Defense Forces and afterwards in the Mossad, and from there to strategic studies and uh, strategic research. What inspired you to write this book? Uh, I have, for, for, years, for years, I was too busy to write books, uh, but I sort of kept a checklist of topics that I had dealt with, let's say, in a strategic or intelligence research context um, that I wanted to get back at some point in my life and even set aside relevant documents looking toward that day when I'd have more time uh, and leisure uh, to write. Uh, The the events that I'm writing about at the end of March 2002, um, I I simply recall at the time the, 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 the... the uh, juxtaposition of these events in three days of three very strategic events, um, saying to myself, wow, that's something, let's see where that leads. And and then following in the years thereafter, uh, and occasionally looking back and saying, ah, it began there, this began there, this this began with the Arab Peace Initiative in Beirut, that began with the Park Hotel bombing, or with the IDF reoccupation of the West Bank. And about 10 years ago, saying to myself, you know, there's a book here. And, uh, and, and, and it has to go on my list of books I want to write, which, was, which I was beginning to, to, to deal with about a decade ago and beginning to write. Uh, I thought other things were more urgent. But here we, we got to this, and I'm very happy I did. In your perspective, um... How did you grow through your writing process? Writing a book is not an easy process for anyone. How did you overcome the obstacles in terms of the time and task management to create the book? Um, do you have any lessons about how you grew through the process? Well, take into account that for decades I had been writing. I had been writing uh, at the level of, of articles. Uh, about strategic issues. Uh, In the Mossad, uh, I had been writing intelligence assessments. Um, Actually, uh, I think my wife likes to point out that my problem is that, that, and and others have pointed this out as well, that my problem is that uh, all I can write uh, is in the strategic field, in the field of strategic assessment. Uh, And I I have a real block to writing, let's say, fiction, to turning something I'm, I'm looking at that interests me, to turning it into fiction. After all, the topics of this book could be fictionalized, uh, could be made into a novel or novels. Um, that's completely beyond me. So th- this, is, this is how I write. The books 
for me uh, are an extension of the kind of writing I've been doing for virtually the past 50 years. So I didn't feel that there was any particularly traumatic effort here mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, of actually uh, writing a book. But of course, the other thing is you have to know when you start writing on a topic uh, that, it's book, that it's a book length topic and not one that you're going to exhaust uh, after 50 pages, let's say which is always a possibility. Um, but I think in, in this particular case, given the fact that we're talking about three very traumatic and strategic events in, 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 in uh, Israeli history, in Israeli-Palestinian, and, is, and Israeli-Middle East history, Israeli, Israel-Arab history, uh, I never had any doubt about that. And the actual challenge was how to keep the book uh, short enough to be readable. Yes. I appreciate you sharing that perspective with us. In your view, why is it necessary for us to remember the events of 2002, 20 years later, in 2022? What is the risk that we face if we forget these events? Well, first of all, uh, when I started writing, I think it was 2017 and uh, or 18, and I didn't realize that uh, this the writing and publishing process would take me all the way to 2022. But at a certain point, it, it be obviously became convenient to publish this book more or less on the 20-year anniversary of, uh, of uh, the events that, uh, that are being described. In your perspective, what are the four features of the March 2002 events that make them unique in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, first of all, uh, like the events of, uh, of 1948, Israel's War of Independence, the birth of the State of Israel, you have here a confluence of both the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israel-Arab conflict. And that's quite unique. I mean, if you take, for example, the Yom Kippur War, it's the Israel-Arab conflict uh, or the uh, Sinai, Sinai campaign of 1956. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's clearly... Uh, hold on a second. Yeah, secondly, uh, when these events took place, and I think this is quite unique. As I said, it took me about 10 years to conclude that there was a book here, that there was a confluence of strategic events. It was not clear at the time. Uh, and, and I found it very interesting in, in interviewing people who had been in some sort of official capacity, security capacity or others, including Palestinians and Arabs and of course Israelis, uh, uh, and saying to them, well, Let's look at the events of the end of March 2002, and and they say, and they would say to me, "Oh, we never, we never really thought about the, this being, a, uh, this being a book, this being a, a major strategic crossroads uh, for Israel in its Middle East history," uh, and that's that's uh, that's quite unique. In other words, nobody quite understood this at the time, uh, exactly how unique they were. Uh, a third unique issue is you have the juxtaposition of the personalities, the very unusual personalities and leadership styles of two, two uh, leaders of great note, uh, Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat. It's not often in Israel-Arab history that you can juxtapose two such striking figures uh, who left such a strong imprint uh, a, uh, on history. Uh, and finally, uh, the hand of fate. Uh, the Park Hotel bombers on the eve of Passover, uh, March 27, 2002, um, didn't know much about Passover, didn't have a, didn't know where they were going, didn't know where they were going to, uh, where the guy was going to uh, pull the string and, and blow himself up. Uh, it was pure, it was in many ways pure chance. It was a rainy night. 
uh, and they were desperate to find a group of Israelis celebrating something they called Passover and kill as many as possible. And it was pure chance that what they carried out was the worst terrorist atrocity in uh, Israel's modern history. Uh, that was chance. Uh, the Arab Peace Initiative in many ways was chance because of when you, uh, and this is one of the most fascinating aspects of the research I did for the book, when you question the Arabs who were involved in putting together, together the peace initiative, and you question Tom Friedman, who takes credit, I think justifiably, for being the, the originator of the idea of an Arab peace initiative, uh, uh, you discover that every, just about everybody involved had an ulterior motive. Uh, a, not it, what they intended is not what came out. A and of course, the proof of that is just a year ago when uh, the, uh, uh, United Arab, the, uh, the uh, United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, uh, normalize relations with Israel and justify it, what they're doing on the basis of the Arab Peace Initiative, which at least in terms of what's written on paper in the Arab Peace Initiative is a total contradiction of the Arab Peace Initiative. Uh, it, so it, it meant different things to different people when it was being created and ever since then, uh, and yet it's still around. Uh, and that, uh, uh, and it, depending whom you talk to, uh, you get a totally different take on this. And that I find quite unique as well. One of the key events of the period is Ariel Sharon's visit in July of 2000 to the Temple Mounts. In what ways was this move directed against his the crude rival, Benjamin Netanyahu? In what ways was this directed against the prime minister? Ehud Barak? And did Sharon ever feel remorse or regret over this incident in light of the violence it catalyzed? Well, I'd never heard him uh, express regret. Uh, and uh, uh, you can certainly make a case that uh, the Second Intifada would have broken out uh, on the basis of some other Casus belli, some other excuse. Uh, and uh, Sharon, I mean, what he was doing, uh, visiting the Temple Mount that day, uh, he was not trying to start a, a, a renewed violent conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. That was not his intention. It was really to uh, outmaneuver Netanyahu for leadership of the Likud uh, and to uh, portray El Prime Minister al-Barak in a bad light because Sharon was planning to run against him and which he eventually did and won. Uh, so from his standpoint, tactically, that Temple Mount visit was a success. Uh, by the way, I have to mention here, uh, about 10 days before Sharon's visit, I was on the Temple Mount. Mm. Um, uh, Israeli Jews could not only go into the onto the Temple Mount at the time, they can now as well. There were times when they couldn't because of, of, of tensions in the area, but at the time, Israeli Jews could go into the mosques as well. You took off your shoes and you could walk around the mosques on the Temple Mount. So I remember when Sharon did this, I, you know, okay, I was there 10 days ago. He can be there. Uh, it, it was not a... It was not written in the stars that this would provoke an intifada. And uh, uh, as far as I know, that's what Sharon felt as well. And as I said, from a tactical, political, domestic Israeli standpoint, the visit succeeded. Mm -hmm. You allude to two different models of American involvement in Israeli-Arab peacemaking, the obstructionist model and the indifferent model. What do you mean by these two paradigms and where did President George W. Bush fit in regard to these two paradigms? Okay, I, I have to refine that point a bit. It, sure. It, instruction, obstructionist and indifferent are two ways of describing the same model. Sure. The other model is 
the one where the United States takes the initiative. Right. They pro, pro, if we let's call it the protagonist model. Okay. Uh, for example, uh, when uh, a, Bill Clinton invites the parties to Camp David uh, in July 2000, this is the United States leading in peacemaking. Uh, and this has been the pattern. Uh, a, it was the pattern with Clinton. It was the pattern with John Kerry in uh, the summer of 2014. Uh, sorry, the summer of uh, 2013, uh, when he had his own peace initiative. Uh, and the point I would make is if those American initiatives have usually failed. Uh, and the, the peace initiatives that have succeeded are the ones where the U.S. is either indifferent or obstructionist. For example, Oslo, the American PLO negotiations behind the back of the United States, uh, without the blessings of the United States at all, or the negotiations in, uh, in uh, 1977, uh, between uh, 76 and 77, between first the Rabin government, then the Begin government, and uh, Sadat, Egypt Sadat, negotiations that took place, place in Morocco, uh, and which were in many ways uh, intended not only to make peace between the two sides, but to prevent the Carter administration from proceeding from its initiative to convene all the parties in Geneva and impose some, some sort of grand comprehensive peace on the Middle East, which uh, both Sadat and uh, the Israeli side uh, felt would not work and would be counterproductive. Uh, and it was only when they succeeded that, uh, and uh, Sadat came to Jerusalem, uh, that uh, the Carter administration had to acquiesce in this bilateral peace when it, when it was after all looking for a multilateral peace. So this is the other, uh, uh, this is the more, if you like, the more successful example of Israeli-Arab peacemaking has been when the two parties got together, uh, didn't ask in advance for the blessing of the United States, in some cases were, were uh, uh, felt impelled by American policies in the region to uh, 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 circumvent the United States, bypass the United States, and do this on a bilateral basis. Uh, and the Oslo and the Israeli-Egyptian uh, peace uh, are two good examples. Of course, in all those cases, the minute there's a breakthrough between Israel and an Arab partner, they go, they go straight to the United States, straight to Washington to ask for Washington's blessing, its guidance, its, uh, its shepherding of the peace process from that point on. And that's what happened in both those cases as well. In your perspective, why have both bilateral contacts and external involvement failed to bring about a solution to the conflict? In your perspective, how has peacemaking attempts, how have attempts to make peace after the second intifada been different from attempts before it? Well, the attempts before it uh, uh, were involved sitting down Israelis and Arabs, uh, and mainly Palestinians, um, with an American uh, mediator, uh, uh, but with the U.S. at the table and and face to face. If you look at if you look at peacemaking between certainly between Israelis and Palestinians since the events of 2002, uh, they have not involved direct negotiations. They involved American go-betweens. Uh, Kerry in 2013, I think is an excellent example. Uh, the parties never met. Uh, and this is quite a striking dis uh, difference between the, the, those kinds of peacemaking. Now, of course, when you get to the last few years, you have Israel and uh, several Arab countries, the UAE, Morocco, Bahrain, Sudan, uh, uh, making peace uh, through a, a, an interesting combination of direct bilateral contacts, which are based on decades of clandestine 
contacts between the two sides uh, and uh, direct American intervention when we get to uh, uh, Trump and, and, uh, and, and Jared Kushner. And that's quite an interesting and rather unique, uh, I think, uh, combination. You have an interesting passage in you in your book where you present the perspective of the former American ambassador to Israel, Daniel Kurtzer, who presents the idea that the story of the roadmap for peace during the Second Intifada is like a Shakespearean tragedy playing out in a five-act play. Can you explain this metaphor? What well, occurred uh, in the first four acts of the play and how is act five still playing out today? Can, can you well, describe what you mean by this? It's more than the roadmap because mm -hmm. it, it, Dan Kurtzer uh, goes back to uh, the period, uh, the beginning of the second intifada in, uh, in 2001, um, 2000, September 2000 and into 2001. And then uh, uh, using the, the uh, the broadly accepted definition of the five stages of a of a tragedy, a, a Shakespearean tragedy, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement. We're in the denouement now, as, as you as you alluded already. Um, but uh, uh, Kurtzer takes it uh, step by step through the events of the Second Intifada, uh, through the attempts by the Bush administration to intervene to stop the intifada to somehow bring the two parties to the table to at least negotiate a ceasefire and we get to act three which is the climax the shakespearean tragedy climax which in 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 dan's kurtzer's telling it is the events of late march that is the park bombing the uh, a, a passage of the Arab Peace Initiative in Beirut and uh, the Israeli uh, uh, reoccupation of the West Bank. Uh, these are the climax. Uh, you mentioned the roadmap. That, that fix fits into Act 4, which is basically uh, falling action, the roadmap, which was it never went anywhere, uh, uh, which was a, in many ways a distraction for Bush, who was much more interested in, in at that point in invading and occupying Iraq. In, in, in late 2002, 2003. Uh, and the denouement, which still goes on today because uh, nothing has been resolved. Uh, uh, some things have been resolved between Israelis and Arabs, but nothing has been resolved between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, and so you really can't say this, that this tragedy is concluded. Between 1982 and 2002, in what ways, if at all, did Ariel Sharon personally change? What role, if any, did the Sabra and Shatila massacre and the Kahan Commission report, which found him to be culpable for it, change Ariel Sharon by the time he was a prime minister? To what degree did he perceive the Israeli-Palestinian conflict differently as prime minister to his worldview when he was defense minister? Um, look, factually, we know that, uh, first of all, the Khan Commission, in, in barring Sharon from continuing to serve as uh, minister of defense, uh, the assumption at the time was that he's finished. He's out of politics. He, he lost his job in the Begin government, uh, and, and he's from, forbidden from returning to it. Uh, Dov Weissglass, who in 2002, uh, or even, no, going all the way back to 82, uh, served as, as Sharon's lawyer vis-a-vis -vis the Khan Commission uh, hearings and, and maintained, remained in close contact with them afterwards and was politically or is politically quite different from Sharon because Sharon was always known as a hawk and Weissglass was, is uh, uh, quite dovish in his orientation, uh, particularly on the Palestinian issue. But Weissglass, uh, who became an official in Sharon's government uh, shortly after the events of late March 2002, testifies that Sharon 
the main lesson he learned uh, from Sabra and Shatila and what happened to him afterwards and the, the price, the political price he paid uh, was caution. Uh, to be much more cautious militarily in his dealings with the Palestinians. Uh, and we see this in, in March uh, 2002. It took a lot uh, of Palestinian terrorist bombing and killing of Israelis uh, before Sharon yielded to what his own military was telling him and gave it the go ahead uh, to invade, uh, a, a, a reoccupy re uh, the West Bank. Um, and create uh, security facts on the ground that exist to this day, which is the real significance of that uh, Operation Defensive Shield. Uh, so uh, this is, uh, I think, in uh, well, that's certainly one main lesson. Another, of course, we have to see that Sharon uh, was turned out to be the man who withdraws Israeli settlements from the Gaza Strip. There's a direct link between the events of uh, March 2002 and the, the later, a few years later, withdrawal uh, uh, from the Gaza Strip. Sharon making preparations to withdraw from the West Bank as well. Sharon talking about a two-state solution. Uh, this was quite a transformation. And it was an extremely difficult one for him because he lost his the support of his uh, base among settlers and, and right-wingers who uh, believed in continuing to uh, hold on to the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, I think you have to factor in age here as well, experience, uh, and something else that uh, is not directly linked to Sabra and Shatila in 1982, um, but uh, it, it sort of continues to reverberate in Israeli ears to this day. There was a popular song at the time, in 2002, uh, that uh, talked about things you can see from here, you can't see from there. And uh, Sharon, when he was asked why he changed his approach, why he was so cautious about using military force against the Palestinians, why he eventually wanted to withdraw from the Gaza Strip, he quoted the song. He basically said, when you get to the top, the very top, uh, and the buck stops here, uh, you look at things differently. And that was also, I think, a reference to 1982. Uh, he was subject to a, a Prime Minister Begin. He was able to manipulate him at the time to get Israel into Lebanon. Uh, but he, he didn't feel the same sense of responsibility in 1982 in his strategic decision-making, which was bad, uh, as he did in 2002 when he was in charge. To what degree was Sharon aware of the reputation that he had among Arabs and Palestinians? Did he understand why Arabs and Palestinians were traumatized by him? Did he want this to be so and see this as something that played to his advantage to what degree did it did he care that he was seen in the arab world as being like genghis khan uh i well you know it, it, it's something i i can't find any direct reference to in things that he said or biographies biographies or conversations for that matter that i ha i had with him uh, I think he was clearly aware, uh, and that uh, he 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 uh, he he never minced words about his belief that you can't make peace with the Arabs, that they're not a trustworthy peace partner. I think that goes that they're not trustworthy. That goes that's the, really at the heart of his approach to them. Uh, and yet, having said this, then how do you explain? that in the run-up to the uh, Arab League meeting in Beirut in late March 2002, Sharon sent out feelers to Arab leaders, uh, invite me, I want to be there too. Uh, your peace initiative uh, is, has, has some merit to it, so let me in to talk about it. Uh, 
this is again things you can see from here you can't see from there it's the only way to explain this but of course uh, it was too late and i i think he had no illusions that he'd get an invitation he knew what his reputation was uh, uh, but he still felt it necessary to try to somehow correct that image uh, in his uh, approach, at least in the rundown or the in the rundown to the uh, Arab uh, League approval of the Arab Peace Initiative. Mm, understood. Can you comment on the importance of the interception of the carrying a vessel by Israel's navy? Why yeah, was the vessel thing, so threatening? And to those who are not familiar, in, Jan in January yeah. two thousand two, uh, and uh, we're talking about a, a vessel bearing arms from Iran for the PLO. Okay, which which uh, came from Iran, loaded with arms, went through the Suez Canal. The idea was it would somehow find a way to offload them at the in the waters off the Gaza Strip, and they would find their way uh, to the West Bank as well. Uh, a, a, an operation in which it was clear to Israel from good intelligence that it gathered that uh, it could point to direct involvement by Yasser Arafat and direct involvement by the Iranians. Uh, and uh, a, that was rare, that you could actually pin it so clearly on Arafat. This also a, it was an indication to Israeli intelligence that uh, the Palestinians, not just Hamas, but Arafat as well, Fatah, intended to escalate the Intifada uh, beyond just suicide bombings. If you look at the kinds of weapons that they uh, that were, 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 were supposed to be delivered by the Karine. So this, this, was, this was traumatic uh, from the Israeli standpoint and it completely belied Arafat's protestations of innocence, of wanting peace, of wanting a ceasefire, of not having started the Intifada and so on and so forth. So this was the significance of the Karine. Can we can we discuss the siege on Arafat's compound, the Mukatta? How did Sharon respond to American international condemnation of the siege? Well, Sharon's response to that condemnation, and in general to American calls for Israel to. Uh, uh, to let up the military pressure uh, on the Palestinians in the West Bank uh, was to very publicly state, uh, look, I'm responsible for the lives of Israelis. And uh, it, it doesn't take me two seconds to, uh, to, to take whatever actions I think are necessary to save the lives of Israelis, uh, no matter what uh, you, the international community, say. Uh, now, having said that, if you, again, with perspective of some years, if you looked at, at the siege of the, of the Mukata, which was repeated several times, by the way, throughout the Second Intifada, uh, did it produce a, a change in Arafat's uh, leadership of the Palestinians, in uh, sponsorship of violence in the whole course of the Second Intifada? No, it did not. And you have the testimony of... Uh, of uh, 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 American uh, uh, mediators who uh, uh, were allowed by Israel, insisted that the IDF allow them into the, uh, into the Arafat's headquarters uh, to talk to him during the siege, uh, the, the IDF siege, uh, and who testified they found Arafat in full-fledged guerrilla hero mode, uh, leading a fight to the death of Palestinians, um, refusing to discuss uh, ceasefires and the like. Um, in other words, it, in many ways, it toughened him uh, and pushed him into an even more belligerent mood. And in that, in that sense, um, 
it's very hard to credit this siege with, ha- which ha- with having uh, produced any positive result. You quote Aaron David Miller as saying that Yasser Arafat during the siege was in his element, automatic weapon at the table, sitting defiantly at his head in his wrinkled Che Guevara outfit. Consequently, you quote Miller as implying that the siege on the compound was a failure. Do you agree with that assessment? To what degree did Arafat win symbolically? Um, Can you speak to that? He didn't win symbolically, but I I certainly uh, would agree that the siege had no positive outcome. Uh, by the way, because it just it, it put Arafat in that fighting mood uh, that certainly didn't contribute to any uh, Ameri- attempt, American or otherwise, to, uh, to end the Intifada, to introduce a successful ceasefire. By the way, you mentioned Aaron Miller, uh, and I have to give him credit also for the title of the book, Death Tango, because it was he who, who in writing about Sharon and Arafat uh, during the Second Intifada uh, saw it uh, saw their relationship in, in in terms of a kind of a death tango. When we think about when we think about the the Bush administration's role in the Israeli Palestinian conflict at the time, which is occurring concurrently with the run up to the war in Iraq and midway through the Intifada, the the early years of the war in Iraq, how was Secretary of State Colin Powell's approach to the Middle East different from Bush's quote-unquote neoconservative cabinet members? How did the differences between Powell and other Bush cabinet members play out in behind-the-scenes interactions in the Bush administration? And how did this play out in regard to the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Can you speak to Colin Powell's approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is actually timely in light of his recent death? Well, he was clearly odd man, odd man out in, in, in that administration uh, because he was not a neoconservative, he was not a neocon, he was a liberal, and he believed in diplomacy. Uh, uh, and he, uh, he, he thought it was possible, would be possible, could be possible through diplomacy to uh, somehow wind down uh, this intifada. Uh, uh, and he was apparently, uh, we, I mean, we have the testimony of people who worked with him at the time, like Aaron David Miller, like Anthony Zini, like uh, uh, a Ambassador Kurtzer, uh, uh, that he was constantly taking initiatives which the somebody in the administration would uh, uh, prevent him from carrying out, whether it was a, a, a press conference or, or, or some, some, some other mission. Uh, and uh, uh, so he was frustrated. He was clearly frustrated. Uh, and and he, was, he was found himself in an administration that not only had this neoconservative approach, which in, in, the, the, in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was also uh, territorially oriented. You had neocons in the administration who wanted Israel to stay in the West Bank and stay in the Gaza Strip and hold on to these territories uh, and had absolutely no room in their concept of the Middle East for a, a two-state solution uh, uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the run-up to the uh, uh, the uh, occupation of Iraq, which preoccupied the neocons in the Bush administration far more than dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Which and and Powell obviously felt this that it was it, he was kind of a, a fifth wheel uh, uh, with no enjoying no great support in his in the peacemaking efforts uh, he sponsored. Uh, And of course, you can draw a a line straight from this to his famous appearance in the UN Security Council before the American invasion of Iraq and is uh, adopting, uh, feeling obliged uh, by his 
uh, his, his sense of duty to the commander in chief, to the president, uh, and, and not to not to question him, not to protest his positions, uh, and and ending up a, a, a mouthing a false intelligence about uh, uh, who Saddam is and who Iraq is and what uh, uh, their intentions were in the nuclear and other non-conventional fields and the like. Uh, this was part of the, the, the tragedy that Dan Kurtzer uh, uh, describes in the book in Shakespearean terms. Can you comment on the role of Anthony Zinni, American envoy Anthony Zinni, um, his role in trying to uh, mediate in this conflict and the relationship that he had with Israeli interlocutors and Palestinian interlocutors? I interviewed Tony Zinni for the book. Um, and uh, he, he has a... He, you know, he has quite a history of uh, beyond his military career of being uh, sent by U.S. presidents to try to mediate in conflicts, uh, not in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Uh, but of course, uh, when he took upon himself the mission to try to bring about a ceasefire, not peace, but a ceasefire between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, he entered, uh, he, I mean, he had had no previous uh, acquaintance with the adversaries, with the Israelis and the Palestinians. Israel, by the way, today is in CENTCOM. Zini was a commander of CENTCOM, but at the time Israel was not in CENTCOM and he had no direct contact with Israelis or Palestinians during his military years. Uh, so he had to get acquainted with everyone and with Sharon, it was general to general. Uh, with Arafat, he, Zini testifies uh, that Arafat did not inspire a great deal of, uh, uh, of confidence in his credibility uh, in Zini's eyes. Uh, and he goes on to say uh, that he found the most productive uh, track to follow, to pursue in trying to talk about a ceasefire was in, at, the, at, the, uh, at, at the military level on both sides. In talking to Jibril uh, Rajoub and Mohammed Dahlan, uh, heads of the uh, PLO uh, or Fatah military in, in uh, the West Bank and, and the Gaza Strip, uh, and talking to Gyora, General Gyora Island, uh, chief of planning in the IDF at the time, um, he felt he could, he felt he had here, he felt he had partners he could work with. Um, but uh, in his own testimony, uh, if, he, if he had any hope that a, a ceasefire could somehow break out, uh, Arafat dashed it. Really? Can you comment on Jibril Rajoub and Mohammed Dahlan, both in relation to Yasser Arafat and also in relation to Anthony Zinni? How did their personal biographies and personality traits explain the ways that they interacted both with Arafat and with Sini? Well, the, the two of them then, as now, as now, I have to say, saw themselves as candidates for leadership of the Palestinians in a post-Arafat era. Uh, back then, they were under Arafat's command. Uh, very different personalities, very, very similar histories. They had both been involved in uh, terrorism against Israelis, both been imprisoned for uh, years in, uh, by Israel, uh, been released and been absorbed into the military ranks of, of Fatah, uh, and ultimately been accepted by Israel as interlocutors whether in the context of the Second Intifada or, or other issues between Israelis and Palestinians. Extremely different personalities. Rajoub seemingly very uh, simmering, a, a sublimated anger. Uh, a Dahlan very open, joking, um, a much more talkative. Both, by the way, fluent Hebrew speakers uh, and rivals and rivals. Uh, Rajub in the West Bank, 
Dahlan in Gaza, but rivals for Arafat's attention and, and for what they uh, uh, saw themselves as potential, potential successors. And as I said, they still do. Uh, Rajub in the West Bank, Dahlan eventually kicked out uh, uh, by uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who succeeded Arafat, uh, now located in uh, Abu Dhabi, or I think Abu Dhabi, uh, but seeing himself uh, as someone who could come back to uh, uh, Gaza and the West Bank, or, or at least the West Bank, because it's Fatah, and Fatah is not exactly uh, welcome in Gaza, but uh, come back and, and uh, try to uh, assume a leadership position. In other words, when Mahmoud Abbas steps aside for whatever reason, uh, you're going to see these two, these same two guys uh, uh, at the uh, uh, at the forefront of contenders for leadership of uh, the uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. There's an interesting passage in your book where you describe the subsequent journeys and career trajectories of several of the figures in Palestinian leadership who were with Yasser Arafat in his compound during Israel's siege in March 2002, Rassan Khatib, Mohammed Dahlan, who we just discussed, and Salam Fayyad. Can you comment on their subsequent life paths after the siege? Where are they today, 20 years after the events of your book? Well, Rassan Khatib, is a friend of mine. Uh, and from 2001, in other words, before the events, the main events described in the book, he and I, and until 2012, collaborated on some, something called Bitter Lemons. Uh, you can still find bitterlemons.org on the web, uh, an Israeli-Palestinian dialogue, and is, is a, a general Middle East dialogue. Uh, so Rassan had a uh, had his academic career and uh, uh, and had bitter lemons uh, before the events described. He had them afterwards, and he's remained in academia. Uh, he was uh, vice president of Birzeit uh, University for a while. He's still a professor there. Um, so not a lot has changed in his life. Uh, Dahlan, we talked about. Salam Fayyad uh, went on to uh, become. Uh, a, a, Palace, a, a West a Palestinian Authority a prime minister uh, a, under a, a Abbas. Uh, a, he, he has a background in, in international finance. Uh, he uh, was eventually was not able to get along with Abbas and, and left government, set up a uh, an NGO, a non-governmental organization in the West Bank, uh, and uh, ran afoul of Abbas and had, had to leave, uh, and went to the Washington think tank scene, uh, where he still is, although uh, last year when, uh, when uh, Abbas toyed with, uh, for the first time in many, many years with, with new elections in the West Bank, uh, Salam Fayyad showed up and uh, announced he was going to run. Uh, those elections never took place. They were canceled. I think, if, to the best of my knowledge, he's back in Washington now. Um, but he is certainly someone who can be seen as a, uh, a, a very respectable potential candidate for Palestinian leadership. Significant attention in your book is paid to the Arab League summit in Beirut in March 2002. Why was this summit so important? And why did half of the 22 Arab leaders scheduled to arrive at the summit not show up? Well, the summit was important because it was the summit uh, that would approve uh, or formulate and approve the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, which is, a, 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 I've already alluded to it. it, it's still in Arab eyes has significance. It means different things to different Arab leaders, um, 
but it 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 was it's significant for Israel as well because in many ways it it is a statement that the Arab Israel conflict is over. Uh, there may not be peace, uh, but there's not going to be. But things will not be resolved by warfare anymore. That's certainly one way to read it, and it's one way that that I think the past 20 years have shown has been particularly true. Uh, so this was the significance of this meeting of the Arab League in Beirut. For the Lebanese, it had some significance too because they'd been through a nasty civil war and uh, uh, this was a chance to show the Arab world that uh, everything is, uh, that Beirut is, is backed uh, as a significant uh, Arab capital. Now, why did half the Arab leaders not show up? Well, some didn't like the idea of the Arab Peace Initiative. They thought this was a Saudi power play, which it was, um, and didn't want to give the, uh, uh, didn't want to accommodate the Saudis in that sense. For example, the Egyptians, uh, for whom uh, uh, this looked like a, a Saudi attempt to usurp leadership of the of the Arab world. Uh, Yasser Arafat didn't attend because uh, Ariel Sharon said that if, if he left, he wouldn't be allowed to come back to the West Bank. And it was more important to him to stay in, in Ramallah, particularly during the Intifada. Uh, a, there were other leaders who, who were afraid for their own security. Uh, there, the uh, various Arab uh, uh, states had intelligence information that Hezbollah, uh, based in Beirut, uh, would try to uh, shoot down their aircraft as they came in to land in, in Beirut. So you had all these interests, these uh, not atypical uh, background factors uh, at work here, uh, influencing the question of who attended and who didn't. But it has to be noted that uh, it, no Arab League summit uh, succeeds in bringing all the Arab leaders. Some just send their foreign ministers uh, for the pre preparatory stage and tell them to stay there afterwards as well. So it wasn't all that unusual. Why did Lebanese President Emile Lahoud snub Yasser Arafat at the summit? Why was their relationship laden with friction? Well, again, this, this is Lebanon and this is the Palestinians. Uh, it was Arafat who uh, a, a, a set up a, a state within a state, uh, a Fatah state, what Israel called Fatah land in the southern third of, uh, of Lebanon. Uh, uh, a, 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 during the 70s and, and, and early 80s, uh, and uh, a lot of Lebanese resented him. Uh, uh, and uh, because they resented his uh, basically his uh, his previous attempt to uh, uh, to diminish the sovereignty of the Lebanese state uh, in favor of uh, of the Palestinians, they resented his sponsorship of terrorism, which was not only against Israelis; it was against Arabs as well. So uh, he wasn't particularly welcome, and and uh, Lahoud was uh, perfectly happy with a, a Sharon's threat a, not to let him come back if he came to the summit. What role did the Sultanate of Oman play in mediating communication between Israel and participants in the Arab summit of, in Beirut? Can you comment on Oman's role and why it was noteworthy? Oman a had ties with Israel uh, many years, since its independence really, certainly prior to 2002. Uh, the British used to rule Oman when they left part of the uh, British withdrawal from east of Suez. Uh, they introduced uh, Israel to the uh, to Sult Sultan Qaboos uh, and, and uh, a, a, there had been a clandestine relationship ever since. It's not quite so clandestine today, uh, but o o Oman has, so, then as now, saw itself as a kind of neutral Arab actor, uh, a, who, a neutral Arab actor 
who could mediate here and there between uh, Arabs and Iranians, between Israelis and Arabs. Uh, and so it was quite natural that when uh, Prime Minister Sharon wanted to send a message to the Arab League, uh, meaning in this particular case, the, the Saudis and the Lebanese uh, uh, invite me to your summit. Uh, it was quite natural that uh, it, it, he would send the head of the Mossad, Ephraim Alevi, to Oman to talk to senior officials there uh, to relay the message uh, that way. And it has to be noted that Oman back then played a, a very positive role uh, in passing messages back and forth from a neutral uh, position and still does to this day. You mentioned that Vladimir Putin harbored a respect for two countries, Germany and Israel. Today, Israeli-Russian relations are arguably at a peak in light of the history of Israeli-Russian and certainly Israeli-Soviet relations. How did this friendship originates during the period of time covered in your book when the Intifada and Russia's suppression of the, 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 the war in Chechnya were occurring concurrently. What drew Sharon and P Putin together? And how did these dynamics set the stage for the rapprochement between Netanyahu and Putin that we've seen in recent years? Well, the rapprochement between Netanyahu and Putin was very much a factor or a result of the Russian entry in, uh, in September 2015 to Syria uh, to hold up, to, to, to rescue the uh, Bashar Assad uh, regime. Uh, in other words, once Russia became our neighbor, Israel's neighbor, um, it was absolutely vital that Netanyahu or any other leader, Israeli leader for that matter, try to establish a, a good cooperative relationship uh, with the Russians in order to avoid friction, particularly in the skies over uh, Syria, where the Israel Air Force uh, then as now has been uh, active against uh, Iranian uh, incursions. Uh, Sharon, you, uh, uh, unlike uh, uh, Netanyahu, unlike any other recent Israeli prime minister, had a Russian background. Uh, his parents came from Russia. And uh, uh, Russian was spoken at home and, and Russian culture uh, was, uh, was still uh, uh, cultivated. Uh, and so he had a, he had a, he had a soft spot in his, in his heart for, for the Russians. Putin, on the other hand, um, was certainly reported by Israelis who had met him a, a prior to his becoming president of Russia uh, uh, in the Yeltsin era. Putin was re reportedly uh, had a special respect for uh, two nations, Israel and Germany. Uh, exactly why, I don't know. Germany, because he served there in the KGB, but why Israel exactly, I don't know. Uh, but he is clearly a very domineering authoritarian leader and someone who would have an affinity for someone like Sharon with his military background uh, uh, and his, uh, his tough, his tough uh, image. Uh, and they hit it off. They, 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 got a, they got along well. Now, it's important to note here, this is a sideshow vis-a-vis uh, -vis the events of March 2002. Russia was not a major player then. Uh, I thought it was important to bring in the Russian element uh, because if you go back to the events of, uh, of uh, 2002 or thereabouts just before or just afterwards, you see the, the groundwork being laid uh, for the current Russian approach to the Middle East. Uh, bear in mind, Russia sees itself as a Middle Eastern country. Uh, uh, and uh, Russian strategic thinkers uh, take pains to, to make this point. Uh, and uh, if you go back to that time, you see a really fluctuating Russian approach. We're talking about Russia in the 
traumatic days after the collapse of the Soviet Union, still trying to find its feet, still, still trying to uh, define itself internationally and particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Middle East. And if you look at it, the history of its approach to the events of March 2002, you can really see this uh, Russia's current uh, approach to the Middle East, uh, indeed uh, a presence in the Middle East, uh, you can see it in the formative stage. I would like to thank you for your time and attention today during this dialogue. I've learned tremendously from you, and I'm certain our listeners as well. As we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on next? Is there any research you're doing now that you can share with us? There is research and thinking about a next book, but with apologies, I'm not going to share it with you uh, because it's simply in too preliminary a stage. And I'm not sure if it's, I don't want to commit myself. Let's put it that way. Okay. But, but there will be, yes, I will continue to write and there will be more books. Thank you. We will all benefit from your sharing of your wisdom and erudition in subsequent books ahead. Um, to our Thank listeners, you. It's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure to spend this hour with you. To our listeners, uh, this has been Yossi Alfer, who is a researcher and writer on security affairs and intelligence who lives in Israel, in Tel Aviv. I am your host, Dr. Ari Barbalat, with the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Yossi, for your attention today. Thanks for how much we learned. My pleasure. Absolutely.